iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How's everybody feeling on this fine summer evening? A little damp, right? Yeah. Got some claps, some woos. I dig it. Good. Well, we're dry now, which is good. Before we go any further, I'd like to actually bring up our evening's guest moderator. He's going to talk to you a little bit. A guest of ours from IndieWire. So please give a warm round of applause for Brian Brooks. Hey. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming out uh, for our discussion on Winner's Bone. I'm the managing editor editor of IndieWire. Um, IndieWire.com is a film publication online. It's been around for uh, 14 years, I think, in July. And uh, pretty kind of amazing, actually. (laughs) Um, But uh, we cover North American independent film. We cover foreign film. um, Go to festivals around the world. So I hope you'll check it out if you haven't had a chance to do so. Um, One of the our favorite films to come out of this year's Sundance was uh, the subject of today's discussion, Winter's Bone. Um, the film not only had a great word of mouth um, among festival goers, but it probably got, well, I mean, probably any filmmaker who was just thrilled to be at Sundance to begin with, and uh, then it happened to win the, the Grand Jury Prize, which was just amazing. And um, not only did it win the Grand Jury Prize, it probably got the best prize of all by getting distribution. Uh, at the festival, which is something that, even in the best of times, never hap- well, rarely happens, and, and it's even more rare now. And then today, uh, they got another uh, shot in the arm. They got a terrific review in the New York Times. So that's really awesome. So anyway, I just want to do that little quick intro, and let's check out the uh, trailer. Way down in Missouri where I heard this melody The old folks were humming The banjos were strumming So sweet and low Mike Satterfield, A1 Bonds What is it you want? We hold the bond on Jessup Dolly He didn't show for court That ain't no run Jessup signed over everything. If he doesn't show a trial, see, the way the deal works is y'all gonna lose his house here and got some place to go. I'll find him. Girl, I've been looking. I said I'll find him. You see, the law was out here hunting Jessup. You know where he's at? I wouldn't tell him nothing if I did. I really gotta run Dad down to get him to show. You ought not do that. Dad's your only brother. I don't know where he's at, and I ain't gonna go around asking after him neither. Who might you be? I'm Ree. My dad's Jessup Dolly. You ain't here for trouble, are you? I got a real bad need to talk to him. Talking just causes witnesses. How long before we get kicked off our own property? I reckon y'all got this place about another week. The law found Jessup's card. Somebody set fire to it. He wasn't in it. Do you know those people going around saying you best shut up? People you want to listen to. Get out of the truck. Put your hands where I can see them. Is this going to be our time? There's stuff that you're going to have to get over being scared of. Get off! Don't hurt my sister. Get in the house. warned and you wouldn't listen why didn't you listen 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Deborah Granick, Jennifer Lawrence, and this evening's guest moderator, Brian Brooks from IndieWire. Hi there. <laughs> Deborah, this wasn't your uh, first round at Sundance either. In fact, you've you've uh, you've you 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 stepped up to the awards uh, podium at uh, in Park City once before, actually. <laughs> yeah, for the other bone. The other bone. <laughs> yeah, the, the first part of the Osteo trilogy. <laughs> yeah, you won the uh, best director uh, prize for for Down to the Bone, and that was two thousand four. Yes. Yes. Okay. So how was it this year, and what was, it, was the experience like showing it at Sundance, and how are the audiences, and so forth? I, I think... Um, was it your first time there? Yeah, it was. Yes, it was yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel that uh, one thing that the audience at Sundance are willing to do early on is to let people know that they're enjoying the performances. I mm-hmm. mean, that's something that is a way that... Um, it's, just, it's, a, it's a good feeling at the beginning of the film being shown that that that's like a, sh- a sure thing that people felt really like, oh God, I, we just saw some really solid work and that was mm-hmm. exciting. And we didn't, and not all of us knew who Jennifer and John are mm-hmm. exactly. It took us a while and it was exciting. It wasn't just a super familiar pre- performer. Right. Um, and, you know, I think the only thing I would say just on the filmmaking side that you, that you guys know so deeply about is that the second time, the stakes just feel so much higher on the auction block. You know, mm-hmm. you really, mm-hmm. you know, it was extremely helpful to get recognition the first time. I mean, right. in a way that I can't really say, you know, uh-huh. how, how extreme that help is and that encouragement. And yet to go back twice and have a film that's deemed entirely non-commercial mm-hmm. with absolutely no potential to ever have a life out mm-hmm. in the world, that would, that would have felt like a hard, you know, really hard blow. So the mm-hmm. feeling of that this, that we had a fine, somewhere a distributor that was willing to stand up right. was an extreme tension of the week I gotta say right. I read uh, that you had you read the book Winter's Bone and you had read it in one sitting is that correct yeah in Washington so what, Square what, what, Park tell, 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 the, tell our audience here and then also the people who are listening um, through iTunes um, <coughs> what, what attracted you to the story what, what, what moved you and I'd also like to hear your thoughts on that too Jennifer um the, prota- the female protagonist. I mean, in, in Daniel Woodrell's novel, Winter's Bone, Ree Dolly is written in a really... Ree Dolly is the character is the, that Jennifer plays. Yes, yes. yes. The, uh, she is written in a way that it's very hard not to get caught up in, in, her, in, in her way that she navigates, in her mind, in her thoughts, which, what her moves are going to be, the resources that she has, just in her strength and her self-reliance. And... I've been waiting, frankly, for a long time to come across in, in, in a book a protagonist that I could like this much. And then the other two outstanding parts of his novel was that the structure of it was hugely ada- easily adaptable. It was written in a way that could, as I read it, it could be con- I could conceive of it as being feasible on a low budget. And then it was in a region I didn't know, and that stoked my imagination Jennifer, maybe you can kind of just give it... You know, people obviously haven't seen it yet, so maybe you can kind of just reveal some of like, some of the challenges that Re faced um, in the story and sort of just sort of the, the, the backbone of Winter's Bone. Um, that's a heavy, loaded question. Um, she faces a lot of challenges that are far, far more than anybody her, her, her age father should be was, Her father, father is was, missing, uh, and missing, she has to yeah. find him um, he, or... 
her. Should we answer it together? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, she has to find um, her father or her home is going to be taken away and she has two younger siblings to raise. Um, so she has to find him amidst a drug-ridden family um, and doesn't take no for an answer and gets into a lot of trouble. So what did you guys do as far as like getting to know the characters themselves? I and mean, obviously you said that it's a, an area that you're not, you're, you weren't familiar with. And obviously, you know, as a filmmaker, of course, and a storyteller, you want to get to know the characters even before you pick up that camera and so forth. So what, what did you do um, as far as tackling the, obviously you read the book, you loved it, but as far as getting to know them more deeply, what, what, what were some of the things that you did? Uh, there were about, I would say, five scouts, and the scouts got deeper and deeper and deeper. The first one started with the author and meeting him and looking at locations that inspired his work, meeting people that could help us understand the meth problem in the area, a sheriff in a, another county, um, a folklorist, historian, musicians. We started to get pieces of information that we would never have known, you know, Outside of the Ozarks, Ozarks history is not taught necessarily. You'd have to actually go seek it out. So we, we needed a feel for the land, both the physical land, the topography, and history made, made a big difference. Mm -hmm. why, why certain things exist, why certain families have certain legacies of self-reliance. How, how did that happen? How did it happen against maybe the grain of other parts of the country? And it was also important to extensively be able to look at people's homes and, the, and their actual, the details of their daily life. So each visit was an attempt to get access, you know, to meet someone, a local fixer, who could then translate for us mm -hmm. and help us actually take these visual notes. The DP, Michael McDonough, would just, we would almost be taking like a visual diary. Every visit would be these studies of what the houses look like and could they be used, you know, could we match them to the houses that were mm -hmm. described in the book? Mm -hmm. And... Also, people's life experiences, it was very important for us to hear. What were their impressions of meth and mm -hmm. how it had evolved over time, how you survive it, how you get past it, who, who they knew that had had a brush up with it. That was, that was important to put real life experience to what was written. Mm -hmm. And Jennifer, I interviewed you actually for IndieWire like about a little over a month ago um, on the phone. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay, on the phone. Um, but it was interesting. You t you'd mentioned to me that your mother had read the book. Yes. Um, before you know any of this had ever come up, and maybe yeah, I want five you, years maybe before. you can just kind of reveal the story like about that because I thought that was so interesting about how you said your mother like said you have to do you know oh yeah, oh, yeah. well it was five well now six years ago um, she read the book and she was like Chan if they ever make this into a movie you'd be perfect for it and I didn't listen to her because she's my mother um, and then yeah five years later I was like remember that book I'm doing it so yeah I know she was right. And then, and it was interesting too, because you you told me that you had really pursued, uh, like a psycho. <laughs> you, you can try is to sugarcoat it, but she is a very subtle psycho. Okay, she was having those emotions. She only revealed a very small fraction of them to me and Anne Roslini, who was casting the film with me and produced the film and co-wrote the screenplay. Anne and I, we definitely it registered that she was committed and very and and was was absolutely willing to show up and then come back across the country and meet us again and that meant a huge deal but we were not privy to like the actual psycho thoughts that you were experiencing because <laughs> you acted you that acted. makes it sound so much worse i was just having psycho thoughts um yeah i auditioned for it twice in la and then they said i was too pretty for it 
So I flew out on a red eye, which will take care of that, and um, flew to New York and like showed up with icicles hanging off my eyebrows and um, auditioned again. And it was hours. I mean, we, we spent hours just talking and doing improv and doing everything. And I, like, you know, my, my psycho thoughts were brewing, and then eventually I got the job. And that allowed us to ponder the phrase, come the nut cutting. Come the nut cutting, yeah. We didn't figure out what that was until while we were filming, because we had trouble with some of the sayings. Uh And so I called my dad, and he told me what it meant, castration. Um, So so we got that sorted I mean, this part of the world actually isn't as foreign to you as it it probably was to Deborah going in. Is that that fair to say or or not fair to say? Because you you grew up up I grew up in Kentucky. Well, yeah, I mean, I grew grew up in Louisville, so I I didn't grow up in the conditions of that. But I did grow up in the South, so I was familiar with with the dialogue and the accent. And, you know, it's all stuff that I've seen. It would have, it was definitely more helpful than being... From, 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 from New York. Yeah. yeah. Right. What, so what, what, what drew you to re? I mean, why, why did you pursue it like a psycho? <laughs> um, I thought it was the best female role I've ever, I ever saw, seen. And um, she, I love that she, didn't, she doesn't take no for an answer. And she has a stubbornness that I felt like only I, I could possess. Um, I don't know. I, I just loved it. And, and then once I met Deborah, once I met Anne, and, and, I, and I heard their ideas, and I just, it was such a beautiful script. Mm-hmm. Um, I really just fell in love with all of it. And where, did you, where actually, where, where in Missouri did you guys shoot? We shot in the two counties um, between Springfield and Branson in southern Missouri, okay. um, Taney County and Christian County. Uh-huh. And, and how long were you and there? And the, um, Taney is basically a butts. North Arkansas, so okay. it's really at the bottom of the state. Uh-huh. And how long were you there? We were there, the shoot was 24 and a half days, mm-hmm. um, and that we were there six weeks prior for official pre-production, and then we had had, in the two years prior to that, the six or seven, I mean, it depends on when you start production, how many scouts, I mean, there was a scout right before, so these, these several trips over the, over the two years before. Mm-hmm. So all in... You know, I think we certainly got to know the coordinates of where we shot fairly well over, over these repeated visits. We saw it in all different seasons, though we always knew it needed to be a winter film. We did see it in, in its glory in spring and its luscious summertime. I would imagine the people who live there might be protective of their, of their hometown. Um, what, was, what was their reaction to having you there? And like, were they, were they, how much of the story were, were they aware of? And just having you, having you all there, uh, what, how did they react and what was your welcome? You know, there was one kind of heartbreaking um, comment that was made to me early on. After the family that we wanted to, we, we approached a family that we found a property that would really be very suitable for the film. It was a, a family holler where there were enough houses from different members of the family that we could actually almost create a world, Ree's world, you know, her, her cousin could really be across the yard as it was described in the book. Um, and the owner of the, the property owner turned to me, and she had read the book and said, um, "You know, the only thing that feels so upsetting is that does it have to have meth in it? You know, this has been a huge problem in our community, and it feels like such a raw bummer that yet another story. If you, you know, that the word Ozark is going to be associated right. to the word meth again." Right. And she said, "And then, but then she said, couldn't you just make it about moonshine?" And I, I, I was like, I, I had a really powerful feeling of cringing because I, because. Partly what I felt she was saying was like, well, since you're going to have to portray us as like 
hillbillies and you're going to have to already invoke a bunch of stereotypes, can't you just pick this more innocent one that's more historical than the current one? And after a lot of discussion, you know, we really, and I feel like she wasn't just yesing me, I feel like it was a long discussion. In the end, she felt comfortable. She kind of discussed it with her entire family. And the fact that Ree is someone who is standing outside of that and saying, God, this is hurting my family. You know, this is not about seeking meth. It's not the uh, excitement that anyone thinks they're such a badass cook and they're actually going to make money from this. It's more that it's a depiction of a family that's gotten caught up in that life and it's eating them. It's, it's hurting them. And so I think they felt like instead it was kind of a factual, if not factual, a, and not, not a critique, but it's like showing it for what it is, a historical, a historical fact. Meth has hurt a huge amount of rural America for basically a decade and a half now. And they didn't mind that being stated as long as there was no glorification or sort of badass behavior around it, meaning on-screen presence of it being in any way aggrandized or made to seem interesting or... Um, and so in the end I felt like that, that very serious hurdle was somehow thoroughly addressed you know, I was going to actually ask you about the, the meth thing whether or not you had, were tempted to not portray meth I mean you yes. sort of anticipated my question I mean the one, the one thing I, was, I did find rather interesting was Jennifer's character Ree um, at least as far, as far in the movie I didn't see any suggestion that she was ever a, a user of it, although she certainly had it around her a lot. Is, is that fair? To say that, that it was so close to her that... It, it was so close to her, but she somehow was able to, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just her personality or... I don't know. Maybe she, she, I, I didn't see that she was directly a part of no, the, meth, she was, the meth trade. she was disgusted by it. But um, I blame a lot of her responsibility and her good decisions and every, on the two children. Because it's hard to it's hard to think about what a teenager would do if it was just their life and they had no parents and you could do anything. But um, she has two children that she knows are depending on her, and that she knows you know, would die without her, and she has to be their parent. And I think that that Sunny and Ashley are her reasons for going the right way. That I mean, because. A stubborn personality like that can go both ways, especially when you're 17 or a teenager. Um, so I think I think mostly the children. Right. Deborah, I, well, I read the New York Times article uh, for your review. Congratulations! Oh, this you, just in. You, it, it was just in. Um, but earlier today, I actually read an LA Times article, which more uh, it was an interview, I guess, with you. Did, I read. I just read it online today. I. I not sure when it actually came out, but um, but in it, the writer said that while you were making the film, um, just reading here, it, that during the making of the film, you had changed your the the experience had changed your attitude toward firearms, hunting, and dietary habits. How so, and how? <laughs> um, I would say very concretely. I mean, I I am such a product of the East Coast. I am a kind of a prototype <laughs> of a. Uh, the Northeast Corridor, a certain kind of liberal politics, a certain kind of vegetarianism, you know. Um, and so I was stepping outside my zip code when I left New York and went to Southern Missouri. I was stepping outside my market sector, clearly. Um, but to not be glib about it, um, the kind of hunting that I was being 
shown for the first time in my life was a very pragmatic kind of hunting. It did not appear to be sport hunting. It appeared to be very functional hunting, hard work hunting that was then very integrated into the family's diet. Uh, the family I'm referring to became the sort of the life models for most of our research. And four days a year in the winter are given off from public school so the children can help the families do hunting. Um, many people feel that they have either factually or in their spiritual life have a Native American ancestral background. It plays out in many different ways, certain uh, attitudes about hunting that I felt like I was witnessing. Um, it's a huge part of life. And uh, there's nothing exotic. It's, it's very rhythmic. It's, and as I say, it's arduous. Hunting is an arduous thing. Standing in deer stand for many, many hours in cold weather, I, there, there's some parts of that that are, uh, I would say, leave sport way behind. And then um, same thing with other parts, of, other wild game that's obtained for, to augment the diet. So firearms. Um, you know, I had seen very responsible teaching of the use of firearms for hunting among very young people. And I was very impressed with that. I was impressed that there was that There's level a of scene trust. With, with, with Rhee is teaching her to, well, her younger brother and younger, and younger sister. And it's, it's very, very much like an attention to, to being careful, like never, 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 <laughs> never point it at each other or something like that. Ever. Right. Ever. Right. But like, I struggle with like, if you see something big and mean, you know, use both barrels. I'm like, oh, God, you know, really, if it's a bear, try to, like, wave at it or do anything but, you know, fire. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that um, the hunting was of a different nature than I had ever been exposed to. And so, was, so were many, many other things. And so, yeah, if you leave an area that you are habituated to and know everything, you know, and are ingrained with attitudes... You do have to open up and see what else, what what other perspective that you can look, and the whole. I mean, I felt like the whole the whole crew probably mm -hmm. experienced that along, you know, we as a group. Right, and that was sort of the case then with dietary. Thing. You, you did you have to sample sample some things jerky? that you weren't probably. What? So used to? Where was I when you did that? Michael was usually the um, the beef eater, if you will. <laughs> he, 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 no, he, you yeah. didn't. Well, you ate meat. Well. We, 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 at the first visit, it was important to be cordial. And, you know, I didn't want to... They already thought I was a weirdo as a city slicker. And they already were just shocked at how few skills I had for any form of living off the land. So I had to buck up. That was, a, you know, it was important. I mean, when I got back to New York, part of it was in my pocket. <laughs> Look on your face, Jennifer. So funny. It's priceless. I'm sorry. Out I'm there not, in iTunes I'm land, just, it's pretty priceless. <laughs> no, at sometimes, given our age difference... You just gave the Pope I, a cigarette. Like... <laughs> Well, I would get dogmatic. She, you know, even though I try not to be dogmatic, I, I you know, but you asked no, me one. No, you're a flexitarian. I'm flexitarian. She's exactly. flexible. Now she is. So Jennifer, you've, uh, in your relatively short career, I guess, is that it's fair okay. to say? Okay. But, well, I mean, but you've managed to win some acting prizes. Let's see, I wrote this down here. You won uh, an acting award at the LA Film Festival for the, the Poker House. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you also won a uh, prize in Venice um, for uh, the Burning Plane. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, you did just a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous job in this film. Um, and I was just curious, you know, how do you, how do you wrestle up your emotion? I mean, there was this one scene, and I don't want to give it away because it's pretty intense. It's very, very intense where you're on the lake and you have to put your hand in the water to grab something, which I won't mention. But uh, it's, it's, 
it's really, really unbelievably intense and just amazing. And so how did you wrestle that up? Or what do you do? Or did do you, I don't know. <laughs> it's very hard to explain. And most of it's instinctual, so it's hard to put into words. Um, it's not, I'm not a method actor, so I'm not, I, I wasn't. Yeah, it's hard to explain. And the more I talk, the more I'm, I'm gonna like. I, I might watch this later and, and cringe. So, it's hard. It's hard to explain, and it's mostly um, just kind of instinctual. Actually, it's interesting because Jen and I literally right before moments before we began talking, we were we were talking about this very question. I get because, it all the time, um, and I don't know how asked, to answer it. It's asked, and it's it's so understandable. It's, it's absolutely a curiosity that all of us who watch a strong performance have, you know, what, what, what is that actor doing to, to bring that about, to, to conjure what they need to conjure? And, and we were, I, in a very recent moment where Jen and I were together just a day ago, and it dawned on me that, it, like, I think actors that don't have a method that they can name, that people can recognize, you know, I don't mean like a brand, I'm just talking about like a, a, either a school or a kind of training, it becomes a very hard question. Mm-hmm. So we, we were searching for like a way to sort of say, that's, that is hard to answer. It's something that's inside me, you know, she was saying inside herself, but it's very hard to put words to it. And so we, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad you asked it, and yet it's kind of a search. It's a search to sort of how to answer that in a way that doesn't feel like she's uh, forced to like explain something that, that is hard to put in words. So we're, we're I'm, I'm joining We're you still in that. trying to find the answer, as you can see right now. But acting is something you long wanted to do. Is that correct? Um, it wasn't. Not until it became a possibility. I mean, I, I grew up in Kentucky, so that that it was never really a, a possibility. I mean, I was always an actress. I was. I came out of the womb like da 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 da. da. But um, yeah, it wasn't until I was 14 that I, I read my first script when I came to New York on spring break and that's a long story but um and it was the first thing that I've ever fully understood and I just felt like you know I wasn't a good student I wasn't a good athlete I wasn't really good at a lot of things but I I I understood this and I understood that and it was the first time I was ever told I was I was like the best at, at anything and I just had this feeling I had to do it so that was late I mean it was almost 15 or something but I was always you know acting and crying and sobbing and then laughing like I was crazy so it was meant to be <laughs> I was just curious because you I read somewhere that you the accent and the accent that you use in this film that you it wasn't a, a, too hard of a stretch it's just as far as being able to like get used to the accent was that correct you of course well I had a mini freak out before we um before we started filming, because Deborah was nice enough to send me recordings, she interviewed people and recorded the voice, and the accent was different. Anytime I think, because I don't, I, I haven't lived in Kentucky for a long time, so anytime my my accent, uh, like I think accent, it goes straight to Kentucky, and the Ozark accent I didn't realize is is very different. So, but I didn't realize, you know, that once I got there and I and I heard it, it came so naturally that I didn't even have to think about it. When you started working outside of Kentucky, did you have an accent, and were you compelled oh, by I was people saying to not howdy use it? to it... like cab drivers to get them to stop? But um, yeah, it slowly it, it went away. I'm, I'm a product of my environment, I suppose. So yeah, it went away. Okay. You shot on red camera, is that correct? I read. Okay, maybe you can explain to the people on listening on iTunes and the audience what that is and why you decided to do that. The red camera is the yes camera. 
I, I need to talk to some people in that company. I'm, I'm promoting it right and left. I, I hope there's no problems politically, emotionally, anything. But um, the camera is this very, very powerful recording device. It's got the same resolution as all the big... I don't know why I'm using like weaponry imagery, but it's got, it's got, it's got all the resolution of the big guns, and it's a democratic device. It's, a, it's many, many DPs that we all know and love to work with own them. Getting them from rental houses, your package all of a sudden is, is like an affordable package and they're, they're common now, they're around. The company is kind of a weird, I don't know, they're kind of a mysterious entity, but they're cranking them out, they try to improve them. Their LUTs tables are not very functional according to Michael McDonough, the lookup table. <laughs> um, that didn't bother me, I, he does such good work. I'm like, you don't need that, you never needed it before, you don't need it now. You know, do your do your beautiful work, but hardy device. It does have it has a couple funky little things that it has. Like it has a little. It takes arbitrary breathing time. It shuts down sometimes. That wasn't too often. Otherwise, ones and zeros, after billions and billions of them recorded over 24 and a half days, they all arrived in New York through a very arduous workflow, and then FCP was Final Cut Pro was used to, as the uh, end editing program and you know I think we felt in the you know visually we felt very excited and rewarded by the use of that camera oh I thought you were about to say something okay Um, so music uh, in the film is is beautiful and I think it provides some moments of levity um, and what is you know obviously a very intense story what 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 were you looking for and and maybe you can give some just sort of some backstory on the music and that you chose the film originally did not have music in it um and through the initial visit and then subsequent visits uh the irresistible nature of the music began began to work its uh its way Mm -hmm. and uh we had the very wonderful experience on the very first visit to meet meredith sisko who um, just bombed in here from missouri just now she's in the audience with us tonight and um (laughs) She sang a song that really you did a wonderful job. By the way, it was really beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna fly the mic down to her in okay. a second. Yeah. Um, but I was gonna say that uh, a song she sang stayed in our mind, and as as the visits ensued, the fact that we were hearing music in a very frequent and un you know unannounced way, we would literally trip upon music making, which felt like it almost felt like a a fantasy about the Ozarks, but it was actually something that we were finding that was born out in reality. So, you know, in that sense, we would have been fools to negate that part or to, to, to not include that. Also, as you're right, it is lyrical. That is where music is medicine. Music soothes. Music tells sad elegies, ballads. It also tells beautiful, hard and difficult, sharp things about life and about existence. So, you know, the film really, we thought, would benefit from the inclusion and, and as I say, it would almost be like a disservice to create a film in this region and not have that be a part of it. And I just wanted to fly the mic in so that you could just hear oh, one, yeah, oh, oh, great, uh, an insight about uh, Meredith. I would love it if you just would speak about um, just how, how you had some of the, choi- the choices you made with some of the hymns and some of the songs that you selected. Well, I, I followed... Um your uh, instruction uh, you may not have remember, remembered it as instruction but uh, 
you, you, they would call and, and say, we need this, this uh, we, so, I mean, something like a hymn that's kind of sad and, and, and speaks, speaks to the situation. And they'd tell me the situation. I said, well, what about farther along? They said, well, we've not heard that. So, so I'd take up my Zoom recorder and sing it into the recorder and then send them the MP3 file. And, and I did the same with Missouri Waltz. They, they wanted to know what it sounded like. And I just, I said, well, uh, first of all, it sounds really racist. And they said, well, could you fix it? And I said, well, maybe. So I got it up on the computer and started messing with the words and taking out the, the things that were blatantly offensive. And uh, it came up with something. And I, again, I picked up the Zoom recorder and sang it into the recorder and then converted that WAV file to an MP3 for people. that I converted from a great big file to a little bitty one that I could send on email. And... Uh, send it to them, and then erase that disc because I was using it for other things, and that's, that same clip is, is what starts the movie. Um, we didn't have the way of file anymore, so they just went with what they had, and, and I, don't know that, I don't know how many pieces of professional work ever start with an MP3 file, but that one did. <laughs> but that's, how did you guys find each other? We were introduced by the author of the novel, Daniel Woodrell. Yes, he knows he know, he lives in the same town as Meredith, and he had known her for a lot of years. And and when we had said, "Is there any chance we could hear some music while we're down here?" You know, one night when we're actually chilling, could we hear some music? And he he knew that um, she and her um, and some fellow musicians had a practice. It was a Thursday night, mm-hmm. and so they allowed us to be there. So that was the introduction. That was how we met her. All right, um, I'd like to get to some questions with the with from the audience. If you just raise your hand, we'll come over for the mic for the podcast. There we go. (laughs) We have one all the way back here. Congratulations, ladies, on the the energy surrounding this project. But this question is for Deborah. Can you talk to me about um, your process a little bit? And how did you get the job after you read the book? Did you option the book? Did the screenwriter, did the book writer say, oh, I got to get this filmmaker to make it? What was that whole process like for you? Um. Let me make sure I understood the question. You asked, um, did we option the book? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that, um, the book was circulating pre-publication, and we did get a chance to read it during that time. And because we liked it immediately in a very powerful way, we really did try to act on it super quickly. We didn't deliberate on it. You know, we we asked God, could we make an overture to him? Can Can we tell Daniel Woodrell that we're interested? And then he had actually seen down to the bone uh, my previous film through Netflix, thank goodness, you know, for Netflix. Um, and, and the conversation, it, it was like I didn't have to make a lot of disclaimers about the kind of film I was imagining. You know, I didn't have to sort of introduce myself in some, you know, with all the adjectives of scrappy, rogue, this kind of, this, all these qualifications of what kind of film or filmmaker I am. Um, he got it. And, and, the, the second part of your question is sort of the process of actually putting the film together or more more so about the screenplay how long did it take to write did the, did the writer like your first version did you go back and forth you know that, that, that whole thing. I co-wrote the screenplay with Anne Roslini who produced the film and the writing of that screenplay was very quick the book is written in a very taut way already the structure was there and that's like my weakest link I'm such a slice of life person I'm such a daily life person I can, I can watch a film you know I can watch the kind of European film where you know people prepare meals in real time and you know 
do a lot of really daily life things. I have a huge patience for that. That is sort of my proclivity. And here I was with a book that had like really well done structure. So that, that alleviated some of the, uh, I feel like the really arduous and confounding part of screenwriting for me, which is making sure the structure is really sound. Um, and Daniel was not heavily involved with the actual adaptation process. Um, we had interesting discussions. Sometimes we would call him to actually confer with him if we didn't understand something. But in some sense, he knew, and we'd already told him that our adaptation would be very close to his novel, which it was, which it is. Um, and, you know, so in that sense, there was no, given the distance we had between us, there was no heavy conferencing on the actual script as it had evolved. We have another one right over here in the second row. Um, my question specifically, it's also to Deborah, but it has more to do with um, the preparation of your actors when it comes to different roles that you have in your films. Like, How are you as a director um, when it comes to the relationship that you have with your actors? When it comes with how I work with them? Yeah. Um, you know... I think this is something I learned early on, and but it was it was definitely taught to me. It's not something I knew. This was instilled in me through different different settings where I did get a chance to experiment with scenes and do you know direct scenes and workshops and whatnot. And that was actors come with so much that the first not assessment, but the first the first steps are just to already see what they're bringing. And it is, and when actors have put a lot of thought into something or are passionate about a role, it's already 97%. Because you, you can't, you know, a director can't extrude that from someone. A, a director can't make someone like a role or be interested in a role. Can't make someone be interested in, in a certain kind of other person's life experience. That has to come from them. What, you know, so what I feel like a lot of what I do is. You know, sometimes I feel like uh, a director has a very powerful relationship with the editor and with the editing room in mind. You know, okay, sometimes when the scene's going really well, you know, you do get greedy. You know, okay, so you've got a safety. You've done a safety. And then, and then sometimes in a good way, you're like, let me also get a variation. You know, she, she did this with her eyes in, in the first four takes. Let's try one where she absolutely averts her eyes and won't look at him. You know, so it's like, you know, it's sometimes it, you don't have a good plan and you feel raw. You're standing there and you're not sure what more the scene needs or what it could be different. And then also cultivating the sense of when is it, when is it just right? When do you back off and leave it and just say it's working as is and to muck with it would be to wreck it. So, you know, I don't, I definitely, I feel like every scene, you know, I've never felt relaxed during one scene ever except maybe the lyrical stuff between you and the children where like whatever way it's it it jumped it was going to be good you know you've got these great ingredients three people under the age of 20 with real tasks to do it's going to be good you know um and so i would say that what well, i guess what i'm trying to say is that it's not like i develop a system that i can use and deploy each time each time each blocking is different and the circumstances. You know, we were in some very squishy spaces. You know, that already is just a, a, you know, a formidable thing to work with and how to, how to make that work on the crew level and on the actual mechanics of the filmmaking. 
Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on on working with Deborah and formulating your character and so forth on the set? Deborah asks questions, which is unfortunately very rare with directors, and hardly anything went into the film that wasn't authentic that she didn't ask many, many questions of, would you say this? Is this realistic? Would a woman do this? And um, she has a very calming presence, which is very important if anybody's planning on being a director to be level, to be never be too excited and to never be too down because it's such a stressful environment and there are so many emotions flying everywhere but everybody is always reliant on the director. If the director's in a bad mood everybody's in the bad mood and you know, vice versa and Deborah was never in either. She was always level and she asks questions um, it actually doesn't make sense that you're a director because you have those two qualities. But you weren't there. I had some. I had two bad nights. The night the four a.m. I wasn't the, there. Four a.m. <laughs> four a.m. in the bushes when we were supposed to drive teardrops car off the side of the road. Oh, I heard that story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was a bad night for me. Oh. Um, especially when the car stopped stopped actually starting. Wait, I was there, right? And then I left. I think you were. Yeah. yeah. And no, so I just want to say that. Yeah. That, that's a generous well, nobody's comment. Nobody's ever going to be. Well, right. no one yeah. can be. But I mean, for I was the most saying, part, try to can't say never. Maya knows <laughs> two films together, and she knows there are um, there's some really gnarly moments where there is total collapse of the ability to be a human being. Uh, other questions? One more? Or are there? Okay. Hi. Um, so I haven't seen the film, so I apologize if this is helplessly. Well, and actually, I was going to say that the it comes out on Friday, right? right? Friday <clears throat> tomorrow. Tomorrow, which is Friday, around um, the corner. Limited, limited re- at New York and L.A. at first, yeah, I believe. Wide it's, uh, on the twenty fifth. And Fayetteville. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and yet yeah, from roadside attractions, but uh, I'll say that again. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so it sounds as if the film is like very location and cultural, culturally specific, and I, I'm wondering what the process was of coming back to New York to edit the film and whether you made trips back there or how disconnected that was actually from the rest of the process of making the film. Does that make sense? You mean, did Jen travel or did she stay the whole time? Uh, to, no, for you oh. As, oh. as the filmmaker. Oh. Um, whether, when, once you got back to New York for the edit, I mean, did you make further trips? How, oh. how long an editing process was that? And did that still feel connected to the culture that the film was set in? Um, the... We didn't have pickups on this shoot. So after principal photography wrapped, there were many months between going back. I did speak to people on the phone very much. It was important for the family that was the core family that assisted us and worked with us for them to know the progress of the film. And however, as the film got closer to completion on the editing side, there were a whole bunch of sounds that we were missing. Damien Volpe was the sound designer and he said we need crows we need gravel we need he had a list of all the sounds of the world of Ree's universe and he said you know I'm not using crows from my sound library you're going to go down and get some crows from the location and we had a, and we had a few lines that we had to get we had a, we had animal sounds of all kinds gunshots we needed so there was this list and that brought me down right close to um, locking picture and we went down just me and a sound recordist and um, one of the producers of the film went down and we were able to get those sounds. And that was very, it was, was really rich to touch base after having not been there. And then 
we have been there since we brought the film there uh, in last month, in the middle of May. But there were there were disconnects by being coming back in New York, absolutely. And we, you know, we felt like there couldn't be too long an interval between these trips. And then when they were when they were long, we actually had to write letters to quite a few of the families we were working with just to to really like promise them that we weren't just blowing smoke, that we were going to come back. I saw there was another question. Or did you have one? Um, my question has more to do with your process as a storyteller. Um, I haven't seen your other film, but I have a recollection of it, and it seems in terms of the colors, in terms of... Um, just the pace that you take when it comes to storytelling, it seems to be similar. And I was wondering, um, what are the themes or ideas that you find yourself portraying or even pursuing when it comes to you being a storyteller? Hmm, that is, um, that's a rich question. You know, I, I feel like I am very open to a wide, wide range of stories. Um, and life experiences lead you to interests that you didn't know you had. You know, um, hearing music that I hadn't been exposed to before the making of this film got me very hooked on observing the process of musicians, watching them play, the photogenic qualities of being around musicians and uh, what it takes to practice, what it takes to get good, what it takes to be on the road. That led us to a story that featured the lives of musicians, very workaday lives of musicians, not a, not a, not a story of musicians as seeking fame or, you know, not maybe a, what I would call almost like the Hollywood version of that story. Um, so that was not a story that I knew I was interested in until I got involved with the most recent film. But in general, uh, I am drawn to stories that are outside of my own lived experience. You know, I know one narrow path of who I am, my, my economic background, my East Coast geography, my social, you know, my social class, my race, everything about me is one path and I, I, I'm always, I'm very curious about lives in this vast country that I don't ever get a chance to know about unless I, I go forward and actually get a chance to, you know, usually a project is what brings you to that. It's very, it's not just a random tra set of travels. It's like you have to actually go seeking a story that other people would help inform. And then maybe along those lines, what, what, what stories or roles are you attracted to, Jennifer? I feel the way about movies I do about music. I like anything if it's good. Um, yeah, it's a pretty short answer. I, I mean, I really don't like prefer one or the other. It's, it's just, you know, this was a good movie. Great. Um, I'm just kind of curious what you guys have coming up also. I think... I. I know that you're uh, working with a, on a film with someone named Jodie Foster. <laughs> um, yes, it's coming out in November. It's called The Beaver. Um, it's with Jodie Foster and Mel Gibson um, and Anton Yelchin. It's kind of a very dark, weird comedy. And Jodie Foster directs, correct? Jodie Foster directs and co-stars, okay. yeah. yeah. Right. And I'm sure you've been busy with this. Do you have any something on the pipeline or I, I feel like TBD? It, well, it's I, I feel like what I've done is um, I've, I've ignited six burners, and you know, 
I look at these six glorious stories, or if maybe it's four burners, you know, two might be very unlikely. Uh, and I'm having trouble figuring out, like, to put some either, you know, in Tupperware for a minute, you know, and, uh, and focus on one. So it's, it's, it's hard. Sometimes on a good day, you realize there really are a wealth of stories. On a grim day and with a lot of naysaying around that happens in the financial world, you don't feel like there are many stories. Um, but we, we now have to actually commit to something and, and want to. Great. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank Give you. A round of applause, please, for Jennifer Lawrence, Deborah Granick. Please check out the film. It opens Friday, limited release in New York, um, also L.A. And then, and then wide on oh. the 25th. Okay. Yeah, 18th and 25th is the rest of the country. Right. Okay, coming out from Roadside Attractions. Thank you guys very much for coming out today. <laughs>